another episode of Mythic Existence. I'm your host, Jack Daly. For this episode, we will be talking about the history of witchcraft. We'll journey to ancient Greece and plunge into the mythic witches of old and dispel the misconception that witchcraft only occurred in the Middle Ages by taking a look at the age of the witch trials. We'll discuss the witches in Shakespeare, learn about the history of Gerald Gardner and Wicca, and finish off by looking at the curious case of witchcraft in Newfoundland. So grab your broom, find your familiar, and settle in for another fascinating episode of Mythic Existence. Okay, well, we'll start off by talking about ancient witchcraft. And the Greek myths actually have a lot of witches in them. So I thought we would start off there. The, the Greeks had a thing called the Triple Goddess, which was Persephone, Demeter, and Hecate. And the symbol of the triple goddess has become the symbol of witchcraft basically today, which is the three moons, the, the crescent moon and the full moon with a waxing and waning crescent moon on both sides. Um, I'm sure that you're familiar with the symbol, but what that symbolizes is the triple goddess, which is Persephone, Demeter, and Hecate. And those are three female goddesses from Greek mythology. And they also symbolize the, basically the three phases of womanhood, being the mother, maiden, and the crone. Persephone is the mother, Demeter is the maiden, and Hecate is the crone. So because those figures are associated with witchcraft, I thought we would kind of dive into uh, their mythology and talk a little bit about them. So the myth of Persephone is one of the really most famous myths of all time. It's one of my favorite myths. Um, and this is really where Persephone and Demeter and Hecate kind of get into the mix mythologically. So basically what happened is Hades, the god of the underworld, decided he wanted to marry Persephone, who is the goddess of the underworld, becomes the goddess of the underworld, and of spring growth, essentially. And she was walking with some other maidens, and she was ensnared by the beauty of a blooming Narcissus flower. So a flower started blooming, and she kind of was taken aback by it and went to check it out. And when she did, the ground opened up, and Hades, in his four-horsed golden chariot, abducted her and took her down to the underworld. So Hecate and Helios, Helios is the sun god, Hecate is the goddess of witchcraft and magic, amongst other things, and we'll go further into that. They tell Demeter, who is the goddess of fertility and also the mother of Persephone, what has happened. And Demeter is so aggrieved by this that she starts neglecting her duties, and the earth becomes barren. So Zeus who probably would have approved of Hades, you know, abduction and all the stuff that goes along with that. Um, he sees no way around this earth becoming barren and he sends Hermes, the messenger god, to go retrieve her, retrieve Persephone from the underworld. And he does. Demeter and Persephone are reunited. But on her way out, Hades tricks Persephone into eating a pomegranate. And according to the ancient law, that means that she must stay in the underworld 
um, for a portion of time at least. And so Hades and Demeter, they basically come to an agreement where Persephone must spend half of the year in the underworld and the other half with Demeter. Some people say it's two-thirds of the year with Demeter and one-third with uh, Hades. I like to think of it as half and half. A lot of people say that this is an explanation for the seasons. Um, you know, the half where she's in Hades would be the, the winter, the fall and winter. Whereas the the good half is, or the half where she's with Demeter is the spring and summer. So when she's up in the world, then the world has, you know, grains and flowers and the world isn't barren like it is when she's in the underworld. But as we'll see, it gets a little bit more complicated than that. I think that that's definitely a good level of explanation, but I think that there's more to the story. And I think that has to do with these things called the Eleusinian Mysteries. So the Eleusinian Mysteries was basically a yearly initiatic ceremony that took place in Eleusis, Greece. And... Basically, um, it was named after the Fields of Elysium, which is essentially the heaven of Greek myth. And every year at this place, there would be this giant festival where people were able to come and get get initiated into the Eleusinian Mysteries. So it was a mystery school. And it was based entirely around the, the myth of Persephone. And what would happen is... At the end of the ceremony, the initiate would be able to drink what was called the Kikion. And researchers have postulated that the Kikion was an ethiogenic psychedelic drink. People think that was probably psilocybin. They're not really sure exactly what it was. But the purpose was to lift the initiate from the realm of the human to the realm of the divine. And so I think that there's something there inside of the, the myth of Persephone that has to do with being raised from, uh, you know, the consciousness, uh, from a lower consciousness into a, a sort of higher consciousness because of the Eleusinian mysteries. And a lot of the, the, the Eleusinian mysteries were basically the who's who of the ancient world. If you were in you know, the Greek Western society, you would have gone to to be initiated in the Eleusinian mysteries. Plato, Socrates, they went there and they were initiated and they were able to have this visionary experience that sort of showed them the realm of the gods, essentially. So I just find it very interesting that the myth of Persephone is what the Eleusinian mysteries center around. There's also Hecata as a part of this entire story. Of course, she's the third part of the triple goddess, the uh, the waxing crescent, really. Um, I believe it's the waxing crescent. She's the goddess of witchcraft, magic, the night, moon, ghosts, and necromancy. And I mean, right away from the symbol of the triple goddess, you can see associations with the moon, with the, the female with fertility, all that stuff that has become associated with witchcraft into the modern day. 
she assisted Demeter with two torches to go into the underworld. And so she's usually depicted with these torches. And there's a lot of myths about the, the familiars um, that she had. Familiars are basically animal helpers that assist witches. There's the black she-dog, which used to be the Trojan queen Hecuba, who leapt into the sea after the fall of Troy. And if you think back to the last episode that I recorded about the legends of Logan, Utah... If you've listened to the episode, you'll remember we talked about the Witch of Logan Canyon, who was named Hecuba, but is also called Hecata. I had actually forgotten at that point that Hecuba was not just a mispronunciation of the word Hecata. It was an, another mythological figure that was associated with Hecata. So that's her she-dog, and she also has a cat. Hecata has a cat, who some people was... They say it was a witch named Gail who was transformed because of like her uh, incontinence, basically, or that it was the midwife of Alcmene who was transformed by the enraged goddess uh, Eletheia, who was also associated etymologically with Elysium and uh, Eleusis, plus she was adopted by Hecta. So... Those are some of the Greek myths. There's also a famous witch in the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. Her name is Circe. And she appears in Book 10 of the Odyssey while Odysseus is, of course, trying to make his way back home. And he comes to the island of uh, Aea. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Uh, And when they get there, they find Circe with some strangely docile lions and wolves. So you can see from the get-go that there's something strange and powerful about this woman because she's able to basically control, you know, some of the strongest beasts of the wild. There might be something, uh, you know, allegorical going on in there too, but we'll skip past that. And she basically, she lures Odysseus's men in with her singing while she works at this mighty loom that she has. And she feeds Odysseus's men. He's Odysseus isn't there at this point. But she also includes a magical herb in the food that she gives them. And she turns the men into pigs. But one of Odysseus's men, uh, Eurylochus, he suspects something foul some some foul play going on so he goes to tell Odysseus and Odysseus on his way to confront Circe about it he's intercepted by Hermes who gives him a special herb called Molly to protect him with his encounter and he says that he must draw his sword on Circe and make her swear on the gods that she will do nothing more to harm them They end up spending a year there and Circe advises him after when they're about to leave that he must go to the underworld to gain knowledge of how to appease the gods and to return home safely. So we can see some similarities going on between these two stories. There's the mind-altering drug. Hermes, who is the messenger god, but also the psychopomp that is allowed to go into the underworld. And also... a trip to the underworld. So there's some very interesting 
um, you know, mind altering, different state of consciousness things going on here. Another one of the greatest sources for witchcraft in the ancient world is the Bible. I don't really think we have to get into that too far. Um, I've kind of touched on that in earlier episodes of the podcast. There's, of course, the Witch of Endor, and there's lots of passages that refer to witchcraft. Most of them are, you know, typically draconian and basically saying that you need to kill witches whenever you find them, but... I don't know what else you would expect out of the Bible for that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about medieval magic. There's actually a misconception that the Middle Ages were the the times of witches. That's really not true. It's more of the early modern period and the Renaissance, which is kind of funny because, you know, the Renaissance and the early modern period, these are thought of as times of the proliferation proliferation of rationalism and science and stuff like that but at the same time they were uh, you know killing witches in mass droves essentially so to give you an idea of like what the words witchcraft and magic kind of refer to magic comes from magi who was the priests of mithra and which essentially means wise woman and so witches essentially, especially in the Middle Ages, because there were there were witches, there was witchcraft in the Middle Ages. It just wasn't the witch frenzy. Uh, they were essentially wise women or men who were familiar with herbs. Okay, so they were able to make potions and were able to you know know the secrets of specific herbs that come from uh, nature essentially. So. And then in 1487, there's sort of this shift. And this is the very end of the Middle Ages, okay? The Middle Ages essentially are thought to have spanned from 500 to 1500 AD. Those are the typical ages of the typical time frame of the Middle Ages. And in 1487, a text called the Malleus Malficarum was published. And I mean, I've talked about the Malleus Malficarum and a lot of the previous episodes, but if you don't know about what it is, the Malleus Malficarum is translates as the witch's hammer. So it's basically this long text, huge book that talks about, you know, the reality of witches and how they need to be exterminated and all of the other basically magical creatures that lived that need to be found out and, uh, executed essentially and it was published by uh, Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Spranger those were the authors in Germany and these were two German Catholic clergymen so once again we see the church influence coming in here with witchcraft which is always a huge theme uh, you know the the state government or you know the country government and the church are always two huge combining factors that you need to think about when you're looking at old witchcraft. And Germany, surprise, surprise, they had the highest execution rate of witches. And, I mean, witch trials basically occurred all throughout Europe. Actually, the place that had the lowest execution rate was Ireland. They, as far as I know, they had, I think they actually had the first witch trial 
But after that, they barely had any. And the reason behind that is what scholars say is that they believed so much in fairies who were associated with, you know, magic, essentially, that they didn't want to incur their wrath. So they just wouldn't even talk about it, which is really interesting. So Ireland didn't have very many witch trials, but Germany had a lot. And I mean, there's... There's basically several different reasons why I think witchcraft and these witch trials arose. One, we've already mentioned church power and government power kind of working in tandem. Institutionalized misogyny and fear of the other. Like, you know, they obviously this was a time where women were completely denigrated and cast down in society. And... People who were different or acted differently or thought differently were also thought to be, you know, outcasts and they would be basically scapegoated. So scapegoatism is a huge thing that led to people being accused of being a witch. And, you know, it's what allowed witchcraft to kind of uh, keep on going throughout time. And so basically two of the main things that witches were essentially accused of is Malefikia and Diabolism. So Malefikia is basically malicious or harmful magic. That would be something like creating a harmful potion to to do damage to somebody else. And Diabolism is basically you're working in tandem with the devil. You know, you've, you've made some kind of Faustian bargain or some kind of Faustian pact with demonic or devilish forces. And up to a certain time in Europe, actually, they thought that all magic was diabolic until around the 11th century. It's actually a really fascinating history because there's these texts that originated in Europe, texts like the, the Hermetic Corpus and the Emerald Tablet, these, you know, extremely mystical Hermetic texts that were lost but lived on in the Arab world. And then during the Moorish invasion of Spain, they were reintroduced into Europe, into the mainland, and then were translated back into Latin. And I mean, if you've ever read any of these Hermetic texts, you know, they, they're they extremely mystical. And they say things like, you know, man is divine. Man has a, a huge role in the cosmos. They actually refer to uh, man as being God's brother. And so instead of having this top down religious view of, you know, God is something outside of yourself and that men have nothing to, men and women have nothing to do with God. The hermetic texts completely changed everything. And they, they also had a magic, you know, element to them, an alchemical element to them. And, it caused religious reformation, personal reformation. And I mean, the historian Francis Yates says that basically those types of texts are what led to the scientific reformation. So the point being, till the 11th century, all magic was thought to be diabolic and black magic. And then at a certain point, white magic, stuff like astrology and alchemy and stuff like that were considered to be white magic. Some other types of magic that witches or just magicians, wizards could do 
sympathetic magic is a huge one. It's an umbrella term that is based off of the notion that some kind of connection between two things allows for magic to occur. Within that spectrum, there's homeopathic magic, which is based off of the precept, like begets like. You know, like produces like. That's the whole thought but behind vaccinations, essentially. Um, you know, you're you're shot up with a little bit of something to protect you from the larger thing. And there's also contagious magic, which, which postulates that if, if you've touched something, then you're, you know, you've put your magic into it and there's a connection there. So that's uh, sympathetic magic is one of the big things to kind of know about. Um, there's these things called witch bottles that people made, which they're basically little bottles and inside of them you would put like urine and pins or hair and stick them underneath hearths or other openings in the house where it was thought that witches would come in through and the thought was that you would be able to actually snare the witch inside of it um so that's an interesting example of kind of folk magic being used to combat witchcraft so the witch trials, they kind of took off. Um, I mean, they reached their height really in the 1600s for the most part. It's hard to get a precise figure of how many people actually died in the witch trials, but most historians say that somewhere in the range between 40,000 and 100,000, somewhere in there, it was mostly women, but it was also men. And I mean, really, this was... I mean, it's genocide, obviously, but this was actually a holocaust of women. And be, they are burned at the stake. But holocaust specifically refers to a math, mass killing by fire. So, yeah, this is one of the few holocausts that have actually occurred throughout history was this, you know, terrible killing of witches that occurred over several hundred years in Europe. There was one really interesting figure named Matthew Hopkins. He was an Englishman, and he's been come to known as the Witch Finder General. And basically, he would go around England and find witches for money. Witches in quotation marks, I think. He was basically a charlatan who was trying to capitalize on the economic incentives that you know witch hunting was kind of putting out there. And he was active basically between 1644 and 1646. And he was believed to actually be responsible for the deaths of 300 witches. And in England, there's around 500 witches that were actually put to death. So he apparently he was responsible for about 60% of the people that died. And you can see that this kind of system encouraged people to act maliciously and evilly really um and i think that you can find a lot of analogs for that in other you know pressured times that have arisen throughout history and then gradually uh you know the witch trials did begin to decline uh, a really good book called witchcraft and magic in europe by stewart no banked banked on carlu and stewart clark it goes over kind of some of the reasons of this de this decline. 
One of the reasons is judicial skepticism, which, I mean, judges basically just became more skeptical of the trials that were given to them, and it led to a decline. The rise of Protestantism actually helped witch trials to be lessened, according to these scholars. Um, you know, the, the laws at the Catholic Church, the, the papal bulls that were coming down were didn't apply to them. So it led to, to less witch trials. Um, there's also uh, de jure legislation, which basically is, that means that they're repealing the laws. So the laws that basically said that you needed to prosecute and persecute witches were beginning to be repealed. And then there's also de facto legislation. Well, I guess it's not really legislation, but de facto action, which uh, the lawyers and the judges, they simply just stopped prosecuting these trials. This was generally done by 1700 in most countries. I mean, at least the last execution was generally done by 1700. The Salem witch trials, which I'm not really going to get into, um, those were done by 1693. But some countries like Germany and Austria and Hungary, the trials and the execution lasted well into the 1750s, especially the executions with and the trials still going on till about the year 1800, which is incredible to think about. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about Shakespeare and witchcraft because I'm obsessed with Shakespeare and I mean some of the greatest literary uh, you know witches come from Shakespeare of course. Shakespeare was writing between basically the 1590s and 1610s and Macbeth, the three witches of Macbeth are probably the most famous. Um, and so you can see the, the number three in the association with witchcraft going on there. Some people think that the witches in Macbeth were actually denizens from hell and are literally thought to be demons. Not like a person that had turned into a witch, but like a demon that was taking the form of a witch on earth. And if you've ever read the play, seen the play, you know that there's a scene with Hecate that comes up. Um, and one thing that Shakespeare also picks up with the, the witches in Macbeth is that each of the witches represents the past, the future, and the present, um, which is, you can see that also occurs in um, Hercules. You know, the Disney movie has the witches that are with Hades, and um, they're also associated with the knowledge of the past, present, and the future. So that's interesting. Another one of the actually lesser understood Shakespeare plays that deals with witchcraft is Merry Wives of Windsor. That entire play is about witchcraft and covens. Um, basically, it centers around this thing called the Order of the Garter, which is essentially an elite coven that has existed in, in, in England for several hundred years. And it consists of 13 men or 13 women with a man at the center of it. And if you think about that play, you know, Falstaff is dressed up in horns. And um, that has to do with the, the horned god is one of the, the witchcraft staples going back into ancient history with, uh, you know, figures like Serunios and Pan. Those are horn gods that were associated with fertility rites and with witchcraft. 
And essentially, the play is an accusation of Elizabeth being a witch, Queen Elizabeth. So, but it's in veiled terms. So, very interesting. Okay, let's talk a little bit about modern Wicca. Um, you know, a kind of a misconception about Wicca is that it's a direct continuation of ancient witchcraft. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, Wicca is kind of um, very popular nowadays with kind of new age movements, which obviously I'm not against new age movements if you've listened to me say anything, but um, I like to sort of kind of see where somebody's knowledge level, because I mean, like I know a lot about witchcraft. I've been studying it for years. I'm, I personally don't really study or practice. I, I mean, I don't practice Wicca or witchcraft really. Um, but I know a lot about it. And so if somebody's like saying that they're Wicca and all that stuff, I'll ask them kind of about this individual named Gerald Gardner, who, as we'll see, is a huge figure in reinstituting, you know, pagan witchcraft into Western society. And so if you don't know about Gerald Gardner and you profess to be a Wiccan, you got a lot to learn. You need to learn more about the history. <laughs> um, so basically, Gerald Gardner was an Englishman. He was born in 1884. He died in 1964. And he, he ended up joining the Rosicrucian Order of the Crotona Fellowship. And Rosicrucianism is, of course, um, sort of an analog of Freemasonry. It's, a, it's kind of a secret society um, with very mystical beliefs. And he joined what was called the New Forest Coven. Now, at this time, witchcraft was still illegal in England. The, the ancient laws, well, I don't want to say ancient, but the laws that had come down from the early modern period were still in place. So you were not allowed to practice witchcraft. And um, he believed this coven that he had joined to be a continuation of the pre-Christian witch cult. And um, eventually they ended up actually repealing these laws. So witches were able to out themselves. And he basically single-handedly reinstituted Wicca, witchcraft and created Wicca. And it was kind of a syncretic mix of Rosicrucianism, ceremonial magic, Crowleyan magic, the magic of Aleister Crowley, and of... the these organizations like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, stuff like that. And he published his, his book called High Magic's Aid in 1949. So Gerald Gardner, he's basically the father of Wicca. And Wicca is a pretty recent thing, at least how it's come down to us. Um, there's definitely elements of the ancient pagan pre-Christian Wicca, but really you're, you're doing Gardnerian Wicca if, if you're uh, in the modern day. And I mean, you got to think about the reasons why people would join witchcraft. Uh, one of the main ones is that it was a, a, a way to get a, away from the, uh, the patriarchal he hegemony, essentially. It was a, a way of getting out of the control that the church and of, you know, the people around you had over your life. It was a way to reestablish communion with nature. 
and to worship the goddess, basically. And there's also lessened sexual restrictions, you know? And I mean, obviously, religion is a way of kind of, you know, controlling people's sexuality. And there's all sorts of issues that arise because of that. And so witchcraft is a, was a way for people to get away from those draconian restrictions, essentially. Okay, we'll finish off by talking about Newfoundland witchcraft. We read a book in my supernatural folklore class called Making Witches by Barbara Rietti, which was all about the Newfoundland witchcraft. So I wanted to kind of discuss it a little bit. If you're unfamiliar with Newfoundland, it's off the northeast coast of Canada and it's pretty isolated. So the isolation of this place definitely contributed to the the witchcraft that is so strong there. And in Newfoundland, there's an ethos of cooperation. Everybody is kind of reliant on everybody else there. And there's a there's basically, um, you know, kind of a thing that everybody is connected there. Like the actions of one person affect, affect everybody else. And I mean, that's how it really occurs everywhere. But there it's so integral and so intimately intertwined that it's got this sort of ethos of, you know, you need to help other people out because you're going to need other people to help you. So witchcraft is able to kind of proliferate there and people aren't prosecuted for doing it because, you know, you basically, if there's a witch, if there's somebody that's suspected of being a witch, you understand that you need to help them out because if you don't, it's going to come up it's going to come back to bite you, you know? So that's essentially the, the thesis of that book is that the, the interconnection of Newfoundland allows witches to, to kind of go about their business because people will rely on them to not harm them, essentially. Um, and some of the witches in the book, they exploit these for personal gain, sort of like the inverse of Matthew... Uh, of uh, our man earlier that we talked about, Matthew Hopkins, where he was, you know, he was taking advantage of witches, whereas now the witches have kind of regained their power and they're taking uh, advantage of the other people. So that's kind of an interesting little tidbit, a way that witchcraft is still operating in the modern day. Take a look at the book. It's an interesting read. It's definitely an academic book, but it's still, if you want to learn about witchcraft in a specific setting, take a look at it. Well, that's all for today's show. I think witches are one of those aspects of culture that will always fascinate people and find new ways of emerging and gaining relevance. If you ever find yourself stranded on an island with a witch with strangely domicile animals, make sure to reach out to Hermes and hope he can lead you home. Mythic Existence is available wherever you listen to podcasts as well as YouTube, so make sure to leave a five-star review. Please follow Mythic Existence on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time.